I need support staff to clear the room. Stand up and walk now. Hello and welcome to The Watch. My name is Chris Ryan. I'm an editor at TheRinger.com and joining me on the other line, he'd like to thank the Hollywood Foreign Press. It's Andy Greenwald! Do I deserve an intro like that when I'm so far away? That intro is dedicated to Jumanji, which is bringing (laughs) cinema back. (laughs) Three billboards outside of a Jumanji screening. I am calling in this week from an undisclosed location uh, on East Coast time, and uh, it's what we call real America, Chris. <laughs> and let me tell you, Jumanji is big here. Is it? You know what else is big here? The complete ignorance of most of the nominees and winners last night in my extended in-law family. I kind of can't tell. I was wa- we, we was watching. We were watching this like together. A bunch of a bunch of people were watching the the Golden Globes last night, and I was like, man, I wonder if like anyone gives a shit about this right now it was i was trying to because i think partially it's because you know there's been the globes happens a little earlier so you're not going to get like the post as the movie that everyone is talking about it these slow rollouts that they do with these movies where it's new york and la and then selected cities and then wide for the most part i think it really hinders them becoming major conversation topics with the few exceptions like american sniper was you know, just became a huge box office hit, even though it had opened over the course of six weeks. But I do feel like the bigger movies either came out a long time ago, like Dunkirk and Get Out, or they're mm-hmm. still trickling out uh, to the extent where, like, Phantom Thread didn't even get that many nominations and apparently isn't even being seen by the people who might be voting on it. So you do get this sort of weird, like, I, do you know a Shape of Water fan? No, I mean, I, I would say that if this was a different organization, like if the Oscars were early uh, or earlier, it might be a sign of, well, some some tastemakers that at least we respect to some degree and have a track record have anointed this as the movie to see, and maybe that would eventually make its way through the culture in some way. I'm not saying The Shape of Water isn't good. We got some pushback uh, last week on yeah. Twitter for you lumping it in with your no cartoon policy. <laughs> no, no. I, policy see, is- people will try to really limit me and put me in a box <laughs> and make me one-dimensional. And in fact, By the, the way, things that are one-dimensional are the Beasts and Guillermo del Toro movies. <laughs> I'd also like to add that you are describing the plight of the fish monster in The Shape of Water. People just want to put him in a box and consider him to be one-dimensional, but he just wants to be in love with a soulful mute. So what I'm saying is maybe there's a way for you into this movie, too. Anyway, the broader point is it was an incredibly confusing night on a lot of levels. Yeah, let's Um, break it down. We Last week when we were previewing it, I, and I apologize, I definitely gave a preview of the Golden Globes, a boilerplate preview, as if I was, dare I say it, a fish monster locked in a box of Michael Shannon's religious sex dungeon. That is, which I assume to be the plot of the movie, by the way, based solely on the clip <laughs> that I saw last night. It's like Take Shelter meets Beauty and the Beast. M- meets Fifty Shades Freed, which I also want to talk to you about. <laughs> um, the boilerplate breakdown of the Golden Globes that I gave last week was that this is a Hollywood party. This is the most fun award show. And these kind of questions like, well, are people really, are we sure they've seen Lady Bird yet? Those aren't the questions one normally asks about the Golden Globes. What I forgot was, this is not a normal year, and this is not a normal year for Hollywood to have a party. And so the Golden Globes, perhaps the show least suited for this moment, just in terms of its kind of, hey, we're just, we're just having fun here and there's bottles on the table the show least suited to this new cultural moment that we are all trying to figure out and none, no industry is figuring it out as publicly as Hollywood. So 
we can get into the more specific the specifics of it. I thought there were some, um, uh, exp- you know, some some expressions of female solidarity against um, misogyny, obviously against rape culture, that were expressed beautifully and really important. There were some bizarre, um, almost like visual collisions between people wearing pins that maybe shouldn't have been wearing pins that may come back to haunt them. There it were also a, some like bits a, that were written in June that were, you know, like. Where it's like, hey, like, this is just like, whenever anyone was forced to go out there and do regular award show patter, yeah. I was just like, holy crap, are, what are they going to do with the Oscars? You know, like, it, it was it was a very interesting collision of of trying to make something entertaining out of something that is essentially a very uncomfortable conversation for a lot of people. Yes, and something that is essentially formless, like an award show. And not only formless, but to some degree random, because... The movies, you know, it's rare that the previous year's movies reflect the current moment in any real way, except maybe for some exceptional works of, you know, cinematic um, um, soothsaying. I thought that that said, the producers of the Golden Globes definitely considered where to place the Big Little Lies categories throughout the evening because they knew that it was going to dominate and that that was going to be an almost um, legible spine for a politically charged evening. I thought that was fairly well done from a directorial standpoint. But my bigger takeaway, and then we can get into some of the specifics, is that we aren't just now in a moment, whether it's in award shows or politically or culturally, where everyone is saying the quiet part loud. Mm -hmm. There are conventions that we have accepted that, you know, presidents shouldn't rage tweet while eating cheeseburgers. I'm just throwing stuff out. Um, That we, when you go to an award show, you play the game. You whether it's the Golden Globes and we don't even know who voted on it or it's the Oscars, you play the game and you, you say a speech a certain way and you thank certain people and you make certain faces when people make jokes about you. You behave a certain way. It is, a, it is itself a performance. Those walls are crumbling and value neutral on that, um, but it's, it can be shocking. And moments when it was truly shocking in the positive sense for me is I love Natalie Portman. Natalie Portman just, just went for it you know, and said, here are the five Best Director nominees who are all men. You're not supposed to say that, but it's pretty exciting and a little bit dangerous feeling, I think, for the people in that room, certainly, and maybe the viewing public at large. Yeah, the current ways to Del Toro and Spielberg and Nolan, as Natalie Portman said, that was, you know, they're going to get they're going to get as much viral content out of these things as possible. As somebody who finds most award shows incredibly awkward and somewhat uncomfortable to watch in the first place. Mm -hmm. Um it was interesting to be in a position where that was the point, you know, like you're saying, like it was a much more, not even confrontational. It was just a much more candid award show that was clearly built around a central thesis statement, even if that thesis statement was open to interpretation. But, you know, like you said, Mm -hmm. the spine of the Big Little Lies Awards, the awards for Handmaid's Tale, Oprah's speech. Um, I, I did not read Twitter while I was watching this show, so it was hilarious to me after the fact to go and check and see that Oprah had been elected and impeached over the course of one night on Twitter. So congratulations. Um, Just a whiplash political career. Yeah. uh, I think that the big story for me coming out of this, there, there are tons. The thing that I will be curious about is now that there have been some markers put down in the ground for people like Gary Oldman, for movies like Three Billboards, is the two months of public litigation about the worthiness of these supposed frontrunners. Let's just put it that way. Um, Because 
There's already a Daily Beast piece that was sort of bringing up things that Gary Oldman has said and done in the past. There's obviously, it doesn't take too much creative Googling to find out what people are saying about some of the other winners last night. Uh, mm-hmm. I would direct people to see Ali Sheedy's Twitter account, uh, the actress Ali Sheedy. Well, that, that's actually been deleted, but The Cut, the uh, New York Magazine yes. blog, wrote a pretty comprehensive write-up of what people were saying about winners like Gary Oldman and James Franco while they were uh-huh. on stage with their time's up. In. Yeah, and so we'll see what happens with that. And then on a, on a level of just the usual Oscar horse race stuff, as soon as three billboards, you, you could kind of tell, I can't remember what the first, I think it was Rockwell. When Rockwell yes, won, it was, Rockwell. it was like, okay, I think that this could go, this could be a three billboards night. And they, there had been some chatter about that was a movie that the foreign press was really getting into, uh, the, H, the Hello Foreign Press was really getting into. And obviously it was just one of those like, which does, any, does anybody like, you know, I, I actually probably don't hate I know people who hate three billboards. I actually, there's a lot of it that I like, but I understand the problems with it. Um, I also just think it's tonally like a very strange film to be a beloved favorite. And the way that a couple of different pieces of art uh, have started to be twisted into being anthems of resistance, uh, like I, Tanya and three billboards is interesting to me. But we're going to see a lot of um, actually three billboards is bad. Uh, pieces over the next couple months. Sean pointed that out last night, and we're going to see a lot of just cleaning out the closets going on in the next two months. Because yeah. and and maybe for the be- for the best, you know what I mean? Because I don't know. I just take note of the fact that no one applauded. Not very many people applauded three billboards winning last night. I, I think that it is extremely unfortunate when we live in a time when distinct worthwhile, I don't even mean good or bad, I just mean worthy of engagement pieces of art become hobby horses for, for lack of a better better point, political agendas. And I, to say political agenda, even in this climate, sounds pejorative. I don't mean it. I mean, everything has to some degree a political agenda. But what I mean is, last year, Casey Affleck was the subject of a lot of, um, not even rumors or innuendo, but there, were, there was an issue with where he was accused of sexual misconduct. And in a different era, one year ago, it did not cloud the narrative or affect viewers' minds, or maybe place, maybe it wasn't put in front of the right voters' minds to affect their vote. I'm not saying it should have. I'm saying it did. He won the Oscar. Yep. This year, it would have been possibly a very different story because this is this is where we are in Hollywood and where we are in the world. It is not outside of the realm of possibility to consider payback voting, or payback lack of voting, or previous injustices that some people feel so may have basically been done. the the reverse of well not even the reverse but often in oscar races um people will win awards not for the thing they're nominated for but for the mm-hmm. accumulation of their resume so we're we're giving a new spin to the idea of you deserve it but also that people maybe people will not vote for gary oldman because of a public event in his past because of what happened last year with casey affleck now a couple bigger pieces to say here. I haven't seen Darkest Hour. I haven't seen a bunch of these movies. I'm going to remedy that in the next few weeks. So I'm not weighing in on the merits of their performances or the specifics of the movies. Um, two, the Oscars have always been incredibly political. The campaigning, the voting, the, you know, the, the everything about it. So it is, it, it would be the height of hypocrisy to pretend that suddenly, suddenly things are too political when it comes to the Oscars. It's just that it's too public for right. some people to stomach or deal with. Right. Because we have, you know, we all have anonymous voters talking to the Hollywood Reporter, and we have Twitter raging about it all the time. The 
every year some movies become the the darling of um, whether it's the darling of um, cinemaphiles or indie lovers or whatever the new guard, and then some movies become representative of the old guard, fairly or unfairly. There's always the underdog and the overdog uh, dynamic set up. It's weird that Three Billboards, the third movie by Irish playwright Martin McDonough, has suddenly seems poised to become, in some ways, the overdog, because from what I understand about it, you know, it, it has some questionable racial politics in one of the characters. I think people who are familiar with McDonough's work know that that's kind of his vibe. That's what he does. It's often. not even. I, I, um, I get. I get what people are saying about it. I think that. I mean, without spoiling it, it Sam Rockwell's character is a, a, a racist cop, but over the course of the movie, it digs deeper and deeper into his character uh, and gives him this arc. But there are no significant characters of color. There's a couple of of black black characters in the movie, but there's no no black character in the movie gets that kind of attention. Yeah, I mean, McDonough is intentionally kind of a, a sort of a splatter artist. Like he, he his dialogue is very precision, but he loves to get messy and he loves to go to America to make big statements about American culture and what America means despite not living here and not being from here, which doesn't make his work invalid, but it's worth considering from that lens. And to that end, Mark Harris, our old colleague at Grantland, who's now writing um, a lot for Vulture, New York Magazine, and other places, um, he pointed out that the Golden Globes, whatever the makeup of that shadowy cabal of voters that we love to make fun of, they are, it is the foreign press. And so there is a history, as he pointed out, of Golden Globe voters falling in love with movies that have an outsider's view of America. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, or tell America what America is from an outsider point of view, which may have given three billboards a leg up. I would say there are three other ways that it, that the Golden Globes tend to go on the film uh, in general in terms of their voting. And sometimes it's hard to tell. Certainly, it's hard to tell before the Oscars which one of these years it was in each category. The four ways I think Golden Globe voters vote are: one is that the outside perspective on America. They love doing that. Two, they sometimes good taste sneaks by because maybe there aren't very many voters and a good show or a little miracle can suddenly bubble up and win. Um, the, the flip side of that is their desire to be kingmakers, right? And you can look charitably, you can look at the wins by the marvelous Mrs. Maisel last night, the Amazon comedy that I love. Uh, Rachel Brosnahan won and uh, the show won. You can look at that as an example of them just having good taste and, you know, being excited to, to, to get the, the new, new thing, which is what they traditionally do. They gave, Emmy to Tatiana Maslany, they gave the Emmy. They gave the Golden Globe to her years before she even was nominated for an Emmy. They gave the, the Golden Globe to Homeland. They love to get in front. The flip side of that argument is the suggestion, very open secret, that they may be susceptible to bribes. Not exactly being paid off in cash, but access to celebrity. Yeah, that, and, and, that, and that, that Amazon they are, has cultivated if that. If you talk about these campaigns that the, a lot of these studios run... There are four places like the HFPA, right? Like that, that if, if they, if, if maybe, maybe that they like, if they didn't get, you know, a trip, a boat trip on for like brought to you by the makers of Dunkirk or something, that might be why Dunkirk was shut out. I was, I I think that you will see a different Oscars. I think Mark also said that, which was noting that Dunkirk, Get Out, and The Post were Mm -hmm. all shut out and that that would be, it's highly unlikely. And call me by your name. And that that is highly unlikely that that will happen in the Oscars. But we'll see. Is there, was there anything from the TV side that you wanted to mention? Um, Yeah, I think, well, also, last thing on the movies, despite everything, despite the narratives that had started to firm up over the course of the evening, Lady Bird suddenly won. Uh, And I was shocked by that because, 
Um, you know, Greta Gerwig was not nominated for directing a movie that went on to win Best Picture Comedy or Musical. Laurie Metcalf did not win, which also really surprised me. And then suddenly Saoirse Ronan wins and the movie wins. So you never really know with the Gold Globes, which is on most years that makes it fun. This year made it feel a little bit unsettling, but sure. I was very happy to see it win. Um, on TV, the TV side, side, it was, you know, it was Maisel, it was Handmaids, it was Sterling Brown. Um, yeah, I think for me, you know, we, we, we were excited to do some, some predictions last week and then sort of ran into a brick wall of that drama category. And I really, it was a pick as far as I was concerned. And in the end, uh, in a room full of family members here, the only thing that I said out loud was, it'll probably be handmade just because. Not because it doesn't deserve it, but because in a year with these nominees, none of which was particularly new and none of which felt essential, I wouldn't be surprised if they ate the Emmys, basically. And that's certainly what happened. Elizabeth Moss, you know, we all think deserves all the awards she gets. Maisel, I was really happy to see that win. I think it's a terrific show that deserves a bigger audience, and hopefully it'll get one. I was really shocked to see Ewan McGregor win. Yeah. Um, <laughs> except for the fact that one of the things about the Golden Globes is, unlike the Emmys, which have now gotten kind of used to movie stars being there, the, the Golden Globes still gets pretty excited. But, you know, when you get bigger stars or is stars Ewan McGregor a movie star in the room? Well, that was the next thing. I don't know if he is anymore, but he, you know, the idea of a guy doing a big TV part, splashy TV part, playing twins. Now, I have to make the point that Kyle MacLachlan, who, by the way, looked fantastic last night, played three parts on the far superior Twin Peaks The Return. But I, I come on, most most people I know didn't watch it, let alone the Hollywood Foreign Press Association. Right. Uh, Bateman was robbed. That's my big takeaway from TV. Were you psyched to see him there when you had that little Ozark music play? Yeah, that would be a I, that would have been quite quite a moment if he had won, but I I didn't actually expect him to win. What did you think of it as TV? I thought that um, generally what happens with a lot of these things is that like I cringe a lot during monologues and then f- find myself in a state of beer buzzed uh, at some point about twenty five forty minutes in, and mm-hmm. I thought that that was pretty much what happened here. Uh, did you think Seth Meyers did a good job? I think Seth Meyers did a did a very good job under uh, again not difficult like working in a coal mine is difficult but under under challenging or at least different circumstances I think the thing about Seth is he's so smart and he knows how to read rooms um, which this year suited him and suited the show so I thought his monologue was very good I mean it, there were a couple a couple turkeys in there but in general you know he has the right attitude of uh, skeptical enthusiasm for this and particularly for this year. Again, it was probably appropriate to the year that he seemed to vanish more than most hosts of these things do, but I missed that. It, it, it definitely robbed the show of some sense of structure, and because there was no fun in the room this year, and again, not saying there should have been, but there really wasn't. So there wasn't that, like, let's keep cutting to the funny drunk celebrity, or let's have a little banter or callback going on. And then the other aspect of that that might be worth noting is that it felt like a transitional, transformative year, not just in the content and the politics, but also in terms of who was in the room. There was a funny moment when, obviously, Oprah and Stedman were right in front because she was winning the award, but Oprah is always the front at any awards show. I mean, she's, she's our generation's Jack Nicholson, I think, in that sense. Um, but there was a moment when she got up, probably to prepare for accepting her award, and it looked like Barbara Streisand was her seat filler. <laughs> and I just thought, first of all, that's probably appropriate, but also... That was like that was the older industry seat because the rest of the room is filled with Daniel Kaluuya and Army Hammer and, and Timothy Chalamet and, and Greta Gerwig and a whole new generation of people who 
it's exciting to have them come into the room and to be there. But their roles, they don't feel comfortable in that room yet. You know, the, the, yeah. the Frankie Shaw's of the world, Rachel Brosnahan. So you don't have that clubby atmosphere. But I guess the whole point is this was the year where we got rid of that clubby atmosphere for good or bad. And so it, TBD. Will, I'm not, be a Golden I'm, Globes. I'm not yeah, setting see, off fireworks just season, yet, man. I mean, like, I think that that was one of the things oh, no. that was sort of interesting about what Seth did, which was he very obviously just skipped Trump. Like, you know, he didn't address mm-hmm. anything about Trump head on. Uh, yep. And I think that was probably for a variety of reasons. But he did treat. So he replaced Trump jokes with Harvey jokes. And, you know, I'm sure it got some laughs in the room. And it got some laughs occasionally in the living room that I was sitting in. And uh, it's it was interesting to see that become the replacement. Um I don't really yeah, know. I, I, I know that some people were like, this is this is not really like funny to me yet. You know, this stuff is we did not solve this. So this is there was a little bit of like we fixed it going on and it's not fixed. Right. Like that's sort no, of. And, and, and that's why to me, the Natalie Portman line was the most important because it really unsettled people. It unsettled people who are, you know, and I put this in quotes or, or, or however you need it to be put allies like, you know, liberal lions like Steven Spielberg, it put people back on their heels because the people in that room who wanted to say, no, we're standing for this too. We're here for this. We're here for you. Oh, but why? So why are you, why are you pissing in our lemonade? You know what I mean? It was a, it, it, it was uncomfortable. And that's kind of what this movement and this moment is about. And that's necessary. And it's not comfortable for a lot of people. This isn't going to be the Golden Globes. We hold up to say we did it. We fixed it. But I do think in as much as anyone ever looks back on these things, and I'm sorry if anyone does for their academic studies or for their, God forbid, for their, their free time, this will be a Golden Globes worthy of being studied because it is a transitional year in a very interesting way. And uh, maybe it'll transition right back again in a year or two, but that remains to be seen. Uh, let's talk about the other big thing that was happening out here in L.A. this past week, and that was the TCAs, uh, the annual sort of, was it annual or is it more than once a year? It feels like it's more twice than a once year. a year. It's twice a year. The twice a year confab between television executives and critics where a lot of the new wares get trotted out. Strangely, the sheer volume of television that's coming at us right now makes it so that the stuff that happens at TCAs is almost entirely, uh, you know, symbolic to me. Like, I don't I can't even process shows that are coming on in nine months, much less the shows that are coming on in January and February. I mean, just as run down a list of the stuff that's coming like right now, the Philip K. Dick Electric Dream Show on Amazon, Assassination of Gianni Versace, The Alienist, Mosaic, Waco, One Day at a Time, Here and Now, Good Girls, The Looming Tower, that's all within the next six weeks. So hearing about shows that are going to be dropping in the fall or whether they're going to make Twin Peaks season three or whether or not, you know, next season is the last season of Big Bang Theory is almost all like that's fantasy football for next season. Uh, The one thing we did want to talk about, though, because... They did a panel and the the uh, trailers are starting to drop and it is quite quite a trailer um, is Atlanta Robin season, which is the n- sort of new title, I guess, for Atlanta for season two. Um, the most interesting thing about this was Glover talking about how this story, this season is going to be a lot less formally, uh, I don't know, say inventive, but formally sort of. Uh, inter- formally inventive than la- compared to last season because they have a cohesive story that they want to talk about. And it's mm-hmm. apparently largely tied up in 
several of the main characters have kind of gotten their shit together. They're kind of moving forward with their lives. And now it's how do they keep moving forward without turning their back on where they came from? And I don't know. I mean, I'm I'm highly anticipating this show, obviously. Uh, it is a high degree of difficulty for them to live up to their first season. What do you think of this idea that they're kind of dropping the the a, any episode could be anything? I, I think, first of all, I could not be more excited for this. I, the, the, the best news from last week in the realm of television entertainment was absolutely not just that it's coming back, but it's coming back soon. I mean, they started filming this season, I believe, in September. So to turn the whole thing around and have it premiere March 1st, which I believe is the date, speaks to how desperate, not just the audiences for the show, but how desperate FX is to have it back on it there. I mean, this is a this is a, an incredibly important show for them, as it should be. So I, all the takes that I had ready to dust off from the take shelf, I didn't even have them yet. They're still in cold storage, man. It's, so all I felt was just excitement. I miss the show. I miss these characters. And to your, po- to your point, to your question, this is like the now disgraced Louis. Like, it is an auteur-driven show, meaning the show is the container that can be filled up with anything that Donald Glover wants to fill it up with. And the idea of a show that became known for, we just don't know what it's going to be this week. It could be anything. Deciding what it's going to be for season two seems just as thrilling to me, to be honest, because it means they had something they were so excited to tell they're going to tell it. We have to hope that there's not going to be solo two duo coming in two years, which would keep Atlanta off the air for another, uh, you know, for all of 2019. So it's likely. I wouldn't get my hopes up, man, because I feel like Glover is such like a a restless artist that is constantly looking kind of to be challenged and to do different things. And he did say the stuff he's been saying about solo and working on something where all he had to do was show up and act. Uh, leads me to believe that like Atlanta is a quite a lift for him, and that he looks for stuff to true. break it up. It's true. The, making these shows, especially these personal shows, is incredibly hard. But one of the things that 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 I that I just find truly exciting was you know there I I, I really I don't even remember if we had any criticisms about that first season. But one observation we both made was it doesn't even need to be this busy because we love these characters. We love this performance. And if this were just the show that we thought it was going to be about Earn helping his cousin navigate the record business, then, you know, Dainu, that would have been enough. So if that's what this season is, great. And the trailer, you know, it reminds us without telling us anything, what we love, because just seeing Brian Tyree Henry again as favorite boy was exciting. Seeing Lakeith Stanfield, um, seeing Zazie Beats, like, great. And then just to remember that Hiro Mirai is directing it, and it's it's vibey and surprising and weird. Like, let's do it. You know, we we need this show back purely because it was the best show on TV when it was on in 2016. Uh, anything else coming out of TCAZ? Richard? I was kind of curious about how you felt about even the prospect of a season three of Twin Peaks. I find that to be a one in a million chance, though. Yeah, I mean, you know... I listened to, I'll give another plug for it. One of my favorite Twin Peaks related things this year was the interview our buddy uh, Sam Esmail did with co-creator Mark Frost for the Talk House. It's really a great podcast. I recommend it. It, it. In the mind of Frost and Lynch, you know, it just is what it is. If they had the desire to do more, then they would probably do it. And someone would probably let them do it. I, I, I feel the way about it the way I felt. 10 years ago, five years ago, about the prospect of there being even, a, uh, you know, this, this third season that we got. Okay, that would be wonderful, because whatever Lynch and Frost do, I'm interested in. I, I, don't, I don't think that's imminent. 
it just, I mean, considering how difficult this was to get them together and to pull off, I, I don't see it. Um, but, you know, Showtime is making moves. Yeah. Showtime is trying. I'm, I'm really looking forward think, to uh, Ball Street from Showtime, which is the uh, the Andrew Rannells, Don Cheadle, Wall Street show set in the 80s uh, that that David Caspi, who did Happy Endings, is writing. And what about, they have they have the Michelle Gondry, Jim Carrey show, too, Yes, right? yeah, that too. I think Catherine Keener is in that as well. And my feeling is that that's why the Jim Carrey produced I'm Dying Up Here got a second season, just to keep in business. But yeah. I, 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 that's just my, that's my vibe, maybe, because I'm just not feeling that show. One other note, um, well, two other notes, and one segues into the other topic we wanted to talk about. Um, FX has Trust coming, again, also sooner than I expected, which is March 25th, and Trust is a miniseries um, shepherded by Danny Boyle that is tells the same story as All the Money in the World. Not the making of All the Money in the World. There isn't a moment when Brendan Fraser is replaced by Christopher Plummer. But basically the same story, the same kidnapping, but this time drawn out in TV fashion. It's interesting. My thought was All the Money in the World was going to do relatively well yeah. and people wouldn't want another I think we, you and I were like, story, oh, we but... should definitely hit All the Money in the World, right? Yeah, but just like all other movies that Hollywood puts out that aren't Star Wars, people aren't really interested in it. It doesn't seem to have made any significant cultural imprint whatsoever, right? It seems like it's already gone now that it, 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 didn't, you know, it didn't win anything last night either, which would, maybe would have helped it. Um, look, I, I had some concerns about the, the People versus O.J. Uh, when it came out because it was coming out the same year as, as O.J. Made in America, but there are some stories that are, apparently people are insatiable about. I don't know if... <laughs> if Paul Getty is that, that, that story? Yeah. I, I, I don't know. Yeah. Um, two bits of business that are... One is not relevant from FX is that the Sons of Anarchy spinoff is coming. So, yep. you know, so we'll have to get Shay back on the show to talk about that. And then two, American's final season, March 28th. It's my I'm gift excited. to you. It is my gift to you. Uh, all right, so let's take a quick break to hear from our sponsors, and we're going to be back to talk about 911. Hey guys, January means three things. Cold weather, the NFL playoffs, and The Bachelor. The Ringer Podcast Network has responded by spinning off Julia Litton's Bachelor Party podcast into its own feed. Every Monday night, right after the show ends on ABC, we will post Juliet's breakdown of the latest episode. Juliet's guests include former bachelors like Ben Higgins, former contestants like Ashley I, The Ringer's Roger Sherman, and super fans like The Sports Gal. It is the most amazing and dramatic podcast journey you'll ever have. Tell the Bachelor superfan in your life to subscribe to Bachelor Party on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Art19, SoundCloud, or wherever you get your podcasts. Bottom line, are you in or are you out? In or out of what? All right, Andy, we're doing a little bit of a, uh, like, not not a rebuild, but a refresh on the concept of in or out. Longtime listeners will know that that was uh, the way we like to talk about some of the stuff in the news. We would say, are you in or out on Jeremy Renner's house flipping, et cetera. Um, we would often... We, 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 we were in. We would shatter the sort of concept of in or out, though, by not making it quick hits and <laughs> getting distracted by talking about house flipping for 10 minutes, and then all of a sudden, Zach would be like, it's time to time to break from this. So what we're going to do for in or out now is there's so much new stuff coming out. There's so many shows. We're going to try and keep hitting a fair amount of them, but, you know, just like you, we have a limited amount of time, and we'll tr- we'll let you know whether we're still in or we're, we're going to punch out on a show after we watch one or two episodes. So the first... Uh, 
The first one we're doing is Ryan Murphy's 911, which is on Fox. And it's a good show to evaluate in this way because it is very thirsty. It is a thirsty show that definitely wants to be, I think, a big deal show. It wants to have that attractive people doing idealistic things vibe of Grey's Anatomy from years ago that that could become the sort of central like yeah man everybody loves watching 911 uh and they spared no expense with the cast yeah this show is kind of it we wanted to cover it not because this is the kind of thing that we normally cover but i find this show i find it fascinating Brian Murphy obviously fuels much of FX has fueled much of FX's creative um uh, growth and expansion and a lot of its awards so it makes sense that that Fox, the larger Fox as a company would look to him to save them in some capacity. It feels just like a big juicy throwback because it's a procedural. It's um, it's the budget seems very high, and the, as you said, not to people. It's not just that the people are attractive because they are very attractive, but this show has big big stars doing yeah. things. I kind of can't believe they were interested in doing when all considering all of the work that's available to talented TV actors in this day and age, and that actually before we even get into criticizing the show, that speaks to the loyalty that Ryan Murphy seems to create with his his uh, his troop of regulars, you know, because people like working with him no matter what. I mean, Connie Britton is in the show, and we're going to talk about it. But Connie Britton was just thrilled to show up for People vs. O.J., too, just to sort of lamp and Brentwood for, like, two episodes, right? Right, right. I think, uh, so it starts Peter Krause, Connie Britton, Angela Bassett. Uh, Angela they- Bassett is in the show. Yeah. Can we just take a moment? Yeah, it is. It is so crazy to me that she is in this show. It, it, it it's like watching Wayne Gretzky and Disney on Ice. Like, what is? But what's the Angela Bassett's Stanley Cup right now? Like, what is the thing that Angela Bassett is walking away from to do, to to slum it with Ryan Murphy? I think it's the reverse of that. I think it's like Angela Bassett is like cut the check. I'm on Fox on like you know in the middle of yeah. the week in prime time in a show made by Ryan Murphy. This is this is a big deal for me and. Since they do not make prestige dramas starring anybody over the age of 25 anymore, you know, I think that she's probably like, this is this is a good look for me. And I think Peter Krause is the same way. I mean, uh, I think what we want to talk about, though, is the way in which this show, which is Murphy has talked about, like he wanted to make a show about these first responders that had a real idea of, you know, compassion and goodness and and the things that are can still be uh thought of as ideals in this country is as a as a repost against the sort of the way that the trump has impacted the country um so it, it, out of that you get these three main characters peter Krause is a fire a fireman or like a fire chief kind of for you know, in charge of a station house who's a recovering addict. Connie Britton's got a mother with Alzheimer's and she is a uh, 911 operator. And Angela Bassett, her husband has recently come out of the closet and she's got two kids and she is a police officer. And they keep intersecting at different crisis points throughout and uh, eerily abandoned Los Angeles with no traffic whatsoever. I appreciate the no, fact no that traffic. people pull off the road in this town like nine blocks in front of a, a fire truck when it comes. But it is pretty like... It is crystal clear sunny, and there is not a single car in downtown Los Angeles, which is apparently where all the fires are happening. Um, like there, as it's one of the first shows that I've watched as a transplant Angelino, where I'm like, that's not, this is not close to downtown. Wherever they are, like they've just driven past <laughs> downtown, and then it's got a real '80s vibe to it as well. Uh, some of the the bits that happen. Um, 
like the hot young stud fireman who is named Buck. Shout out to Ryan Murphy. Uh, who keeps taking his <laughs> fire truck to go on Tinder dates is like that just like that dude would just be done. Like it wouldn't be like, oh, you know, you, that's strike one against you. <laughs> like if you can you imagine if there was just like a random fire truck in downtown Los Angeles with a fireman having sex in it. I mean, I know that a lot of these are based on real events, but I, I can't imagine that's it. What's really interesting to me is just to watch something in this time of niche television strives so emotion just takes such strives to be populist entertainment yeah and i and i don't want to ding it for that i mean i i've argued before especially back in my full-time critiquing days that you know if you consider the sh- a lot of the shows that we love to be like indie albums there's still a place for top 40 radio and i held up empire as an example of that which is just the biggest poppiest noisiest, messiest expression of something in a large, you know, in the larger culture, not just something, frankly, on that show, everything. And I, I appreciated that for what it was. Um, unfortunately, that collides with what broadcast TV has traditionally done, which is run, run the same thing for a long time, which means run into the ground. I mean, Empire worked when it worked best because it was 10 episodes in the beginning. And then you, you cannot maintain that level of insanity for multiple seasons, right. although they're certainly trying to. It was hard for me to get through this episode because it felt so deeply backwards looking in a way that I found aggravated. In, te- so in terms of in television just, terms. In television terms. It's not just that it was big hearted or attempting to be big tent positive about literal heroes in our midst. That I'm fine with that. What I what would drag to me is that in still in 2018, all of these big ticket broadcast shows, it's as if they need to be run through some sort of normalizing uh, machine where everything is slowed down and spread out and the exposition is laid on so thick and so heavy. And everyone has, I think you put it to me when we were chatting about it, everyone has one flaw. Yeah. What's, and and what's, is, what's Connie Britton's first line? It's something like, What's your emergency? You could say, like, my whole life is an emergency. Yes, and and then just these other little ticks that I just can't believe are still happening in this day and age, which is you have a show where much older people are writing dialogue for much younger people, and they tried to make it a joke in this, but it doesn't matter if, if Young Buck doesn't understand the references. We still have a show in 2018 where within 30 seconds there was a Rambo reference and a Spicoli reference for someone smoking weed. Like culture has advanced slightly since 1986. You know, we, we could probably come up with a more relevant way to 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 joke about these people that we pass on our way to saving babies stuck in pipes. Look, it, it is a big swing, and for me, the thing that and and by the way, in case you couldn't tell, I'm way I'm wild out on the show. <laughs> I, just, I, I I I hope it, I hope these people are getting paid. So much money to do this that they can afford to. I actually I have some bad news for years. you, Andy. They're not getting paid that much yeah. money because they spent it all on having anthropology do the interior design for the firehouse. Seriously. The firehouse is nicer than any fucking apartment I've ever been in, not lived in, been in. It is so nice. <laughs> Everything is just, it is like yeah. so refinished wood. They're making like this like huge Italian f- 
uh, dinner for like each other. Every they're like, oh, make sure you get some some salad. It's like, who makes a salad? Come on, it's just like you guys are working under like the worst conditions, and you probably just didn't pull a baby out of a pipe. Somebody, the guys are like, let's have bucatini. The station master is is Ina Garten. You know what I mean? Yeah, like, right. Barefoot She's just like, like Jeffrey. It's time to eat. <laughs> I'm serious, and that's, thank you for mentioning that, because that's the other thing that drives me crazy. It's just like, it's 2018, we can have a broadcast show where things, where it's not all aspirational. It's, yeah, you know it's I mean? 2018, not 2029, so when Connie Britton's just like, I'm triangulating the satellites over Los Angeles to find this this kidnapped kid whose mom left her at home, even though she's like six. I, I just, and Angela Bassett is so ferocious. I mean, she's just incredible on the show. And I think it's probably worth noting, one of the things that, that I would imagine convinced her to do it, not just a chance to, to, to do big work on the biggest possible stage, is that her husband, Courtney Vance, did, had such a great experience working with Ryan Murphy. You know, I, that, that's not saying she would only make decisions based on what her husband does, but obviously there's a, again, there's that family family feeling that Ryan Murphy seems to engender with actors that he works with that allow them to trust him with large portions of their career. Um, to me, the thing that is most interesting about this is this is a huge, expensive swing. Um, they did not save money on any part of the show, nor did they intend to. It, the ratings were good. They were not empire-sized, but the early ratings, I think they got 6 million people to watch the pilot, and it's now, I think, free on iTunes. The thing that's interesting to me, and this is the segue I wanted to make from TCA, is what is the future of this show, even if it's a hit? This show comes from Fox Studios. Fox Studios is about to be sold to Disney. The show airs on Fox Network. Fox Network is going to remain part of News Corporation. It is now going to be this weird um, shadow entity, basically, that has no studio behind it. The biggest change in television for the last 15 years has been the trend towards, not just the trend towards, the necessity of owning your own content. Mm -hmm. That way you can profit off it from any point in the lifeline. If this just becomes a rental, for Fox, it is a wildly expensive rental and one that honestly makes no sense for them. For them to basically be the the um, the, the the theater that shows Disney properties once, while Disney gets a profit off it in the afterlife ad infinitum. So, I don't see the show surviving the merger, frankly, even if it was going to. Does that mean FX has to pony up and pay for this show because they want to keep it yeah, going. But it's not an FX show. If it's Murphy, an FX show, the exactly. show, show starts with Peter Krause doing a line and being like, I'm still a fireman. Exactly. Yeah. Does this show pull a, wait for it, sneaky Pete and become a cable show midway through its run? The answer to that is probably no, but the possibilities of that are kind of fascinating to me. I have to just say that based on the people that they got to do it, I cannot imagine that a dark streaming version of this show is what interests Connie Britton, who was on a show on Nashville that was constantly under the threat of being canceled. Uh, Peter Krause, who has been on a bunch of cult hits and then since then has done a lot of shows that you're like, man, this guy's trying to be Ted Danson. Like this guy is trying to be like the center of a show that's wildly popular, whether it's The Catch or Parenthood or whatever. And Angela Bassett, who's probably like, you know, if you guys want to make a cool, interesting uh, black woman LAPD show, let's by all means do that. But that's not what this is. This seriously looks like let's try 13 episodes, see if it clicks, if it becomes Empire, if it becomes Grey's Anatomy from 10 years ago, then everybody's happy. And if it doesn't, we can all walk away with our dignity. One thing to look for is, is there a home for 
big tent, big hearted shows outside of the network paradigm. Um, I think that there should be. I think that for a while, USA was kind of making shows in this space. Um, but you're right. This doesn't make sense for FX. Even if it was tabled up, the, the, the assumption would be that it would get darker. I would like to see a show that didn't get darker, that just got smarter. Um, but I think that leaves the show in kind of an uncanny valley between other networks and their, and their agendas. The thing to keep an eye out for, I think, going forward is the type of show we're describing that is essentially an 80s show that everyone, well, not everyone, people who know who Serper, and people who know who Spicoli and Rambo are grew up and loved. The, there is a place for shows like that, and I believe that place in the near future uh, will, be, will be a Netflix. Because yeah. I think that Netflix yeah, yeah. is positioning itself to rip the heart out of broadcast TV now that it's ripped the heart, not ripped the heart, but it's certainly carved a large cross-section of heart from the prestige television market. Um, and one of Netflix's most powerful things, and Amazon too, is that they don't really have to be beholden to one demographic. In no. fact, Netflix's model seems to be, we will be everything to everyone at all times trust us, we have something for you, please watch it. Um, and whereas maybe the Disney deal will change it, but FX has to consider its own tightly curated portfolio, which has gotten it this far, but it has limited it in terms of you know, nothing on FX is as watched as The Walking Dead or Game of Thrones or NCIS New Orleans, exactly. but it is critically lauded. So 911, I'm glad we watched it because it is a, it's a, it's a, it's a tweener. And uh, it speaks a lot about where it's TV a throw, it's a weird throwback, and it's in. it's kind of interesting to dip dip into that every once in a while. It seems like, you know, and I I think what's what's fascinating about it is to see something that it was like, what if we took the procedurals, which are essentially the the tendons and muscle of of network television now anyway, with all the Chicago shows and even Good Doctor, which is a big hit, uh, is essentially a medical procedural show. Take okay, we'll base all of these law and order style off of real 911 calls. And then you just add that degree of spit shine polish and Hollywood stardom. And we'll see if it connects. But I, I, I would be fascinated to see the first time Netflix goes in deep and is like Ted Danson and three other people starring as, you know, public school teachers or doctors or whatever, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, this, this is, this is a... Uh... It's a new year, but it's a very in-between time. Yes, absolutely. Okay, we'll be back on Thursday. We'll be talking about uh, episodes four, five, and six of Dark, and we'll have some other stuff for you. Until then... Can, uh, can I say one thing about this? Sure. Chris, we have in the past assigned ourselves homework and assigned our our, view, our listeners homework, do uh-huh. like things they should watch, you know? Uh-huh. And I, I'm going to be fully honest with you. It's in the spirit of the new year, in the spirit of me being on the phone and probably sounding not ideal, I'm forcing people to listen to me and my cell phone static more. Sometimes it's felt a little bit like homework. Sometimes it does. Shouldn't, but it does. Let me tell you something. That is not the case with Dark. Your boy plowed through <laughs> this week's assignment way early. Congratulations. And I am ready for the test. Check plus plus. I am all in on the show. You guys, this show really pops off in four, five, and six. Yeah, man. And we have a lot to talk about. I can't wait. So we'll talk about Dark. We'll have some other stuff to chat about. Until then, thank you for listening. Great, 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 great job and great cell phone reception for Anthony. <laughs> <laughs> 